Welcome to the Redeemer Church Podcast. We are spending this summer studying the book of Acts together. Join us in this study and engage in your Bible daily using the Acts Daily Study Guide. It's available at the church this week or on Sunday before service. If you've missed a week, you can watch or listen to all the previous week's messages at RedeemerTulsa.org slash Acts. Now here's week six of our Acts study with Pastor Bill Clark. So I want to start with a story. There was once a man who loved God, and he, had lived, he lived a good life. However you define a good life, he was a good Christian person and would be considered by anybody to be an exemplary Christian. But in his heart, he felt like there was something really missing in his life, and he didn't have a sense of fullness in his relationship with God. And a friend told him about a monk who lived on top of a mountain, on the highest mountain in Arkansas. I haven't mentioned Arkansas in a long time, so I just did that for you Arkansas folks. And so the man decided, I think I'll just go up and see this monk. The monk lived on the top of this mountain in a little hermitage. He was a hermit, had a tiny shack at the peak of the mountain. He lived frugally on nuts and berries, occasional animal and whatever he could find. And he prayed all day and was known to be an exceptionally wise and good person and a good judge of other people's character. The man seeking more of God that I mentioned at the first decided he would visit the monk and see what he could learn about how to be a more fulfilled, better follower of Jesus. And so he parked his car at the base of this mountain. He made the arduous climb through the Arkansas forest and through the bugs and wall of critters. And he got up there to the top of the mountain, and it took him a couple of hours, but he arrived at the monk's so-called residence. The monk um, wasn't visited very often. In fact, he liked company, and so the two just talked for a while and shared common, common thoughts. And then finally, the monk said to the man, I discern you are troubled. How can I help? And the man said, Well, I'm a follower of Jesus. I keep all the rules of the faith as best I can, but I really feel spiritually empty inside. I just don't sense God's presence in my life. The priest or the monk looked at him and he said, "Um, go home and ask God one question. What is the one thing you must be willing to do to be a better follower of Jesus? The man wasn't exactly dejected, but wasn't the answer he was looking for, and he hated to go make the climb, but he did. He climbed back down, and somewhat dejectedly, the man drove back home. He pondered the question for days, and then he drove back to the mountain, hiked up, and said to the monk, I know what it is. I know what that one thing is. I have to give up my love of money, and that'll make me a better follower of Jesus. And the monk said, no, that's not it. Try again. So the man went back down, really dejected this time. He went back down and he said to the monk, as he came back up a few days later, I've decided what it is. I know what that one thing is. I've got to give up my job and I've got to become a preacher. And the monk looked at him and said, sorry, That's not it. And then the monk said, listen, I don't want you to have to go back down, come back up again. 
I'll just save you the trouble and I'll give you the answer. The answer is, you're an honorable man. You're an honorable person. Keep doing what you're doing in life, but you must be willing to do one more thing. I know that's what you said. What am I supposed to do? The monk said, you must be willing to suffer. And I sense you're not willing to suffer for what you believe. The man said, what does it mean to suffer? I mean, life's hard sometimes. What do you mean by suffer? He said, you just must be prepared to suffer for the sake of Jesus. The man went back home, confused and a little sad. Suffering wasn't a part of his game plan. Well, in Acts chapter 6 and 7, a man appears named Stephen. And if you have your study guides, you're going to want to take those out and write down a few notes as we go along. So Stephen appears in Acts chapter 6. He appears, first of all, because he's named one of the first deacons of the church. His name actually comes up first in the list. And so the disciples, the followers of Jesus, the apostles, had, had said, well, we will choose seven men. It happened to be men then. Later it was women too. We'll choose seven men to be deacons, to be people who do the, the hard work of, of taking care of the church because we have so much that we have to tend to in terms of preaching and healing and teaching. So, so let the deacons do those hard tasks. Stephen was one of those, Stephen was one of those people. And Stephen was one of those seven who was appointed to the ministry of the diaconate, which is the original word in the original language. They did call them deacons. But the task would take off some of the load of the heavy burden the disciples, the apostles had. Stephen was described at the beginning of that verse in Acts chapter 6, verse 5. He was called a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Simple description. A man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And he would become the first of many hundreds and thousands of Christian martyrs over the next three centuries of the church's life. Which needs, leads us to, a, I think, a necessary comment about what the persecution of Christians looks like. First of all, Stephen, as we will see, experienced real, intense, deadly persecution for his faith. And today, the same thing is happening in many parts of the world. There are new Christian martyrs every day in our world in places like North Korea, parts of the Middle East, and a few other places. But it's not happening here. Sometimes people will say to me, I think that we're entering an age of persecution for the church in this country. And I'll say, we might be, but there's, there's no current evidence of that. One person one time said, well, they took prayer out of schools. I said, that may not be the right decision, but that's not persecution. Persecution is something entirely different, much more raw, much more real, much more deadly. It happens in our world, but it's not happening here. Christians aren't dying for their faith in this country, and this sermon is not a message to say you should be willing to die for your faith for your country tomorrow. It doesn't mean that at all. Being able to die for one's country, being willing to do so, 
is a highest order state that God calls very few people to. And if God should ever call one of us to it, we should be ready for it. But we don't have to be ready right now. Religious freedom is not just for Christians. Religious freedom is for everybody. And that's what makes for a country blessed to feel that way and to practice that. Chris Stephen was the first of many more to come over those three centuries, and they were all tragic. The first deaths coming to the martyrs were were at the hands of the Jewish authorities. But I also want to give a qualifier here and say not all of the Jewish authorities approved of that. In fact, if you look at the history of the early church, right when it's happening in Acts chapter 6 and 7, you see that the converts to Christianity were all coming from Judaism. They were coming to embrace a faith that fulfilled their own. So the Jewish people were responsible for some of the persecutions, and you see that in Acts chapter 6 and 7, but not all of them by any means. Later, the Roman government, and then simultaneously to this text, the Roman government was also harassing and killing Christians. By the third century, it had finally come to something of a stop. In Acts chapter 6, where the story of Stephen really begins, Stephen was talking, um, beginning a talk, and he was seized by the people around him. They captured him. And they said to him, you have been blaspheming Moses and blaspheming God, and so you are in deep, deep trouble. Well, he had been talking about Moses, and he goes on in his speech to talk more about all of the heroes of the Jewish faith. In fact, if you read the text of Acts chapter 6, which I would recommend in Acts chapter 7, he makes a great case for the Hebrew people, for the Jewish religion, and for what they brought to the civilized world. Essentially, Stephen goes on a speech about the history of God's relationship with the Jewish people and all the good that they did, but that's not how the people who were capturing him wanted to hear it. They wanted to capture him, they wanted to beat him up, they wanted ultimately to kill him because somehow they had branded him a heretic when in fact he wasn't one. He was simply one who had embraced the mission of Jesus in addition to his Jewish faith. So even though he honored his Jewish heritage, Stephen kept going. He kept going. And they were listening. It was a pretty captivating speech. I do hope you'll read it. It was a great speech. And then his conclusion got him into really serious trouble. In Acts chapter 7, verses 51 through 52, make a note of that in your, in your notes. These are the words he said to them after he really began to speak truth to those leaders. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resisted the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. That's fairly inflammatory language. Um, It doesn't appear that Stephen ever read How to Win Friends and Influence People. But he had decided, I'm going to tell the truth. I've told the history of the Jewish people 
Now I'm going to tell what some of them, these members of the Sanhedrin, did. I'm going to tell them what they did. I'm going to tell them that they murdered and betrayed God's anointed one. So he told them. You know, another thing that probably irritated them, this happened to be a group of Jewish men, all of whom, of course, would have been circumcised. And Stephen, um, perhaps carelessly, but he was on a roll, said, um, and by the way, you're not really circumcised. You don't generally tell that to a member of the Sanhedrin. And from there, they were picking up stones. And they held them in their hands, and they started throwing them at Stephen. And they threw them at him until the last stone hit, the one that killed him, and it was over. The first Christian martyrdom had just been accomplished. It's important to note one other verse in this text. It's really important. It's the first verse of chapter 8. And that verse says this, and Saul was there giving approval to his death. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. Saul, the future Paul, the future Apostle Paul, the one whom God had to strike down on the road to get him to understand what he had been doing. This wasn't just Saul being there. He's cheering him on. Yeah, stone this guy. Kill him. And it wasn't the first guy Paul stoned or killed or had killed. Paul would go on through the rest of his life, even in his pastoral epistles, he'll be talking to the churches and he'll say, wretched man that I am, do you know what I did? Do you know what I did to those Christian people? And now I am one. You have to believe my conversion and my complete turnaround. I was the Jewish, most Jewish of the Jews. I was a scholar beyond scholars. And now I'm paying for that with the sense of prevailing sadness that I have that I participated in such sin. Paul knew he was forgiven, but it was a mark on his life and it stayed on his life the rest of his life. The third century theologian, St. Augustine, said that the church owes Paul to the prayer of Stephen at the end, because this is really the high point of the story. What did Stephen do just as he was dying? What were the last words Stephen said? What were the last words that came to his mind, the very same words that came to the Lord's mind after he had been crucified and tortured and stabbed and beaten and he's about to die? He says, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Don't hold this sin against them. And Stephen does as Jesus did and said the very same words, Lord, don't count this sin against them. Now that's faith, that's trust, that's love. Sometimes God, you wonder why did Stephen have to die? And sometimes God just draws straight with crooked lines. There are mysteries to the work of God we simply don't understand. And this for me is frankly one of them. Why did he have to die? Why did the other martyrs have to die? 
they did die. And in dying, he forgave his tormentors. Suffering had to come to the church. The church had to go through some sort of a purification, I suppose, some sort of a grounding in the fires of flame to become the church that it would ultimately become, to be a part of the church that we are still a part of. And suffering comes to the church in those places I've mentioned before, in places without religious freedom. Remember, religious freedom belongs to all people. And if it doesn't, these kinds of things happen. So what are the lessons that we gain from Stephen's life? What are the lessons we gain from his famous and beautiful last words? First of all, the gospel advanced because of the suffering and sacrifice of Stephen. The gospel advanced. As you continue to read Acts, you're going to see that. And as you continue to read Acts, you're going to see the church thrived on this suffering. This, this, this core of belief, this earnestness, this willingness to die for a cause greater than themselves, it touched the watching world. They hadn't seen that. This was amazing. And then not only were they willing to die, they were willing to forgive. This is, this is the church on the move. This is repeated throughout history. This is the God-given connection to speaking the truth as he spoke it, to embrace suffering, to embrace suffering, to embrace the suffering that God allows in our lives. Second, Stephen showed us how to live as well as how to die. He lived fearlessly. He was courageous. He was bold. He wasn't trying to get killed. He just was trying to speak the truth. He knew how to live. And he knew that if he compromised what he said, if he didn't make an allegation that was absolutely true, he would regret it later. And so he gave it all for that. Be of good courage, like a Stephen. That's part of our call. Live this life with a sense of courage. Live this life with a willingness to live and to die for causes and things bigger than ourselves. That's what Stephen left us. And this is a glimpse of the reality to come. Someday, when we come to God's kingdom in its fullness, and we die and we stand in the presence of God, we will be amazed at what things we will see and understand. And all of the suffering will have been worth it, and all of the difficulties and pain will come into focus. We, live, we see through a glass dimly, but then we'll see face to face, and it will be glorious. Third, and I've mentioned this, but it just has to be highlighted again, Stephen showed us how to love our enemies. 10,000 sermons on forgiveness wouldn't have meant nearly what his few uttered words at the life at his life's end meant. You see, the impact of his death had an impact forever. And he showed us, especially in those words where he says, Father, don't hold this sin against them. Let it go. Forgive them. I wonder how many of us still have some forgiveness to offer. 
some forgiveness to seek, some forgiveness to share. You know, bad things happen. Difficulties happen. Disputes happen. Relationships fracture. Relationships get strained. This text reminds us that forgiveness is the key, the single greatest key to effectively living the Christian life. If we can forgive our enemies, if we can forgive those who've hurt us, if we can forgive those who we don't agree with, if we can forgive people for having thoughts different than ours, if we can experience real forgiveness and real relationship, even with people with whom we don't agree, we will have reached a new apex in our Christian life. That's what our culture needs. That's what we need. And fourth, we should be aware of making an idol of the good life. I'll make my confession and say I do that. If life's going good, my health is good, if sufficient resources in our life, if our kids are healthy, if our little grandbaby's doing well, life's good for me. And I begin to think, especially in those seasons of blessing when life really is good, I begin to think this is the be-all and end-all of life. It's just to have a really good life. And I'm a blessed person and I've had a really good life. But there are people out there who struggle. And there are days I struggle. And my life is no better or worse on days I struggle or when other people struggle, their days are no better or worse than when they're living the good life. You see, the pursuit of the good life is a, it's a vapor. You'll never catch it. You'll never catch just the good life. I'm sorry to say this, but something will happen. Suffering will come. It's very unlikely it'll look like Stephen's, but suffering will come. Suffering will come, and then what do you do with it? Do you despair of not having the good life? Or do you say, Lord, you're with me. You're with me in this season. You're with me right here in this moment. And whatever happens, you're good. It doesn't matter if my life's good right now. It matters, God, that you're good. Stephen understood that. The early church understood that. So the two takeaways are really these. Don't worry about suffering. If it comes, God will be with you. And by all means, learn to forgive. Let it go. Let go of whatever you need to let go of. Just let it go. And let God have it. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for Stephen. I bet he was a great guy. I bet he would have been wonderful to know. I can only imagine how many of his friends grieved his loss, but also how filled with faith they must have been that one of their own was willing to give his life for the sake of the cause of Christ. Be with us, Lord.
speak kindly to us, but firmly about who we need to forgive, who we need to love. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening today. If you want to stay connected to all that's happening at Redeemer, visit our website at RedeemerTulsa.org or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.